The people I took from their hiding place did not leave an impression on me. It would have been different if it had been a man such as General de Gaulle or some major resistance member or other. Such a thing you don't forget. If I wasn't on the clock at that moment, my colleague got a call. I would never have come in contact with that Anne Frank. That's Rosemary Sullivan, the Canadian professor and historian, reading from her new book called The Betrayal of Anne Frank, A Cold Case Investigation. You've likely heard all about it, even if you haven't read it yourself. Because of the shocking findings the book reveals, the team of Dutch and American investigators who Sullivan profiles thinks it was very likely a Jewish-Dutch man, Arnold Vandenberg, who betrayed the Franks' hiding place in the secret annex in Amsterdam. And his tip-off probably led to a Nazi raid on August 4th, 1944. Anne, her sister, and her mother died in the death camps. Her father, Otto Frank, survived, came back to Holland, retrieved Anne's diary, and had it published. Sullivan's new book profiles the six-year-long investigation by the team of police officers and forensic experts who used modern techniques to reopen the cold case. She and they have come in for a ton of criticism. And some of it has come from Jewish groups who feel the findings just give anti-Semites more ammunition because a Jew betrayed a Jew. But most of the criticism has actually come from Dutch sources themselves about some of the evidence. Sullivan says she stands by the findings, even though they are hard to accept. And she says maybe it's time the Dutch start to deal with their own painful wartime legacy. 72% of the population, uh, the Jewish population, of being... um, Deported, I have 107,000 people who were deported, uh, 5,500 returned. Of the 25 to 27,000 people who went into hiding, one third were betrayed. It was, uh, it's painful. It's like Canada having to deal with our reparation issues and so on. It's painful, but you've got to face it. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Wednesday, March the 9th, 2022. Welcome to the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Rosemary Sullivan has written well over a dozen acclaimed books. One of them that she wrote about the Holocaust back in the early 2000s even won a Canadian Jewish Book Award. Sullivan is not Jewish. This new book paints a nuanced picture of what life was like for the Franks in Germany before the Nazis and then during the Nazi occupation of Holland and how the Nazis managed to trick so many people into making impossible choices that ultimately ended in the gas chambers. Sullivan did expect some pushback, but she didn't expect this much. The city of Amsterdam wants its 100,000 euros back, which it gave to the investigators to fund their project. Even the book's Dutch publisher has apologized to readers for offending them, although it hasn't stopped sales. Some Dutch historians even take issue with the key findings that the Frank's Jewish betrayer handed over a list of addresses so that he could save his own family. They say he was already in hiding himself, so how could he have known where the Franks were? Also, Otto Frank apparently knew who the betrayer was all along and never chose to reveal him. Coming up, Sullivan will be here to tell us why she stands behind the book and the findings. But first, here's what's making news elsewhere in Canada right now. I'm Gwenny Lindenberg in Toronto, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like. The University of Toronto has decided to punish its Graduate Students Council for still charging fees, which it then uses to promote the boycott, divestment and sanctions work against Israel. The Student Council was ordered to stop using this money over a year ago after a complaint by a Jewish student, Chaim Cates. And they had until March 1st to comply. 
But that deadline passed, so the university provost has announced the school will be withholding over $10,000 in money that was supposed to be transferred to the student council. But the council doesn't have to get rid of its BDS committee. Although the university says charging fees to students for anti-Israel activities does discriminate against those students who don't agree and violates university policy. Author Rosemary Sullivan joins me now from Toronto. If anyone tuned in uh, last week to the uh, Jewish Community Center's virtual storyteller, they would have seen Heather Reisman and you and the chief investigator have a chance to speak to the Canadian audience. Um, I, I wonder, was this the first time that you were able to sort of address all the controversy in a Canadian context? In a Canadian context, probably that was the first, though I have had interviews uh, with New Zealand, Australia, France, uh, certainly a number in the United States, uh, and um, been able to confront uh, the um, complexity of the response to the book. Is the Canadian uh, response any different than uh, what you've been receiving uh, elsewhere around the world, as you just mentioned? Well, I could say that uh, because I'm known as a Canadian author, uh, and um, I would presume have a reputation for a degree of integrity uh, because of the biographies I've done of, say, Elizabeth Smart and Gwen McEwen and Margaret Atwood, and then later Villa Arabelle and uh, Stalin's daughter, um, which uh, was astonishingly uh, the recipient of a number of prizes. Um, it would be assumed that I began um, the investigation and my involvement with the investigation uh, with a degree of commitment and um, um, pursued things as seriously as I could. Uh, there has been some uh, question about motivation that has come out of the Netherlands, for instance. Why a, a, a book about the betrayal of Anne Frank? Uh, is it a sheer opportunism? Uh, I think it was uh, the interviewer on 60 Minutes who kind of said, well, he understood Vince Pankoke's motives and he understood my motives, but he was suspicious of the initial uh, impulse behind uh, the project to investigate the betrayer of Anne Frank. The book is really relevant now because while the initial idea was to decide how and what happened uh, on August 4th, 1944, that the people in the annex were um, dis discovered and arrested. Was it a, um, a phone call from a, uh, an informant? Was it a happenstance, etc.? cetera? Uh, it soon became something larger, I feel, or larger is not the right word, something um, that, uh, that accompanied this concern, which was, what is it like to live under military occupation and how does it happen? For me, the, um, it was very important. Uh, I had to convince the uh, investigative team uh, of my strategy, but it was very important for me to have a portrait of Otto Frank, the, the Frank family. And that moment in 1933, that soon, when he's at dinner with his wife and friends, and they hear that Hitler has been appointed chancellor. And the friends say, let's see what the man can do. And you go from that moment, which we've had in this contemporary world, to the all out war and living in a, a society that is plagued by betrayal, uh, terror, uh, fear, 
silence, who can you trust, etc. Uh, so the controversy that has arisen over um, the identity of the of the betrayer, I think, is misplaced. I think the issue is how, as as we see with Putin, how do you get that level of violence uh, supported by an army, a a, um, a populace, uh, and, and 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 people seem to be almost numb to it. It's shocking. I want to pivot back towards uh, some of the things that the researchers and filmmakers have said post publication. Right. The new the lead researcher um, said he's working on a reaction to the criticism. This was in a Dutch language newspaper. What does that mean? What is he doing? Do you know? Yes, he's done it. Uh, he's created a blog uh, in, in Dutch in which he's responded to the major criticisms. Uh, the major criticisms is that uh, there are no tangible, physical, hold in your hands lists of uh, hiding places. So how do we know there were hiding places? I think people are being, um, are not entering the reality of 1944 August. It was, uh, the war was winding down. It was clear to a lot of people that the Germans were losing. In particular, there was uh, a, um, a uh, sense that um, that a lot of the uh, the um, IVB4, the 4B4 uh, Jew hunting unit uh, Dutch policemen had to cover their act. They had to do things uh, so that when the war was over, uh, they wouldn't be considered traitors. It's very likely that one of them may have given a list of addresses to Vandenberg as a way of protecting himself. There's a guy called Mosbergen who was known to have lists of addresses. Uh, there are references to lists of addresses, etc. So the fact that a physical list doesn't exist uh, is not not a uh, not an indication that there wasn't a list. This is not the issue. If if people disagree with the book, fine. Yeah, that's their is their prerogative. And in fact, there should be a conversation. What the shock is is that the publisher, the Dutch publisher, Amble Athos, apologizes for the book. And puts in the in their apology, we uh, apologize to anyone who is offended by this book. Anyone are the fascists offended by this? I mean, give me it. You know, but Amsterdam uh, just came out. Amsterdam just came out last uh, last year with uh, the Wall of Names, um, yeah. and and they have uh, done. You know, uh, there was a big ceremony, and in fact, the city of Amsterdam gave the researchers for your book and the project, I should say. Uh, 100,000 euros, which they now are hoping to get back. Uh, what do you oh, know really? about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, it takes a lot of this invading turf syndrome, and or I, I'm going to coin it that way, but that's something that I think I understood from your your interview with with Indigo. Uh, wonderful, uh, very well known doctor friend of mine said, uh, "Oh, I recognize it. It's the acute violated turf syndrome." <laughs> um, you know. But that's a conversation should be had, not this hysterical response, because I really do believe that, that Vince and Peter and uh, Tice uh, and all the people involved, uh, the last thing uh, they were hoping that um, what that, that the betrayer would be, you know, Tony Allers or one of the fascists or whatever, the last thing they 
wanted was that it would be uh, a, a Jewish notary uh, and really, really insist that, um, that Vandenberg is as much a victim of, um, of the Nazis as uh, other people, that he survived only five years, uh, you know, uh, is, is not, not part of the story. If the Nazis had not invaded his country, he would have been a man who lived his life collecting the paintings that he loved uh, with his family and his daughter who adored him and his twin, uh, other twin daughters. He wouldn't have had to find this way of saving his family. And frankly, um, one admires his, his, his stamina. He, uh, um, the, 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 the deviousness of the Nazi strategy for dividing the Jewish company, uh, uh, um, community, for uh, manipulating them through the establishment of the Jewish council. The council being turned into the butcher's job of, of protecting the, of determining the spears. Um, the logic of the Jewish council was good that, uh, you know, there had to be somebody mitigating the actions of the Germans, but uh, they got used. Uh, um, David Cohen in the end says that he misjudged the unprecedented murderousness of the Nazis. So um, Vandenberg was able to get a sphere, which was a stamp which delayed your deportation. He was able to get on the Calamari list, which took the J off your uh, list, uh, but he had a, um, he, uh, he had a, um, a notary who had a vendetta against him and was trying to destroy him. And so when he ended up uh, giving a list of uh, anonymous um, addresses, that is anonymous in the sense there were no names attached, who could, who could challenge him as a way of saving? His daughters were at risk, he was at risk, his wife was at risk. So he is as much a victim as anybody. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. If you liked this week's episode about the 100th anniversary of the Bat Mitzvah and the first Canadian women to have theirs, why not send me a note about your Bat Mitzvah memories? You can even make a recording of them on your cell phone and send me the video or the audio file. And maybe I'll put it on a coming show. Just send it to ebessner at thecjn.ca. Also, we've just finished putting the final touches on the proofs for the CJN's brand new upcoming 75-page print magazine. It's coming out around Passover, and it is gorgeous and full of amazing articles that you'll want to read. But you have to be a subscriber to get it mailed or delivered to you. So go to the cjn.ca slash circle and use the promo code for this podcast, the CJN Daily, at the checkout, and you can get a 30% discount on the price. And finally, today, we want to send our listener shout out to Rabbi Bernard Baskin of Hamilton, who turns 102 on Wednesday. He's a rabbi emeritus at Temple Anche Sholem in Hamilton. He took on the job back in 1949 and served for 40 years. He now lives in Toronto, and his family held a birthday get-together for him on the weekend with some close friends, including journalist Steve Pakin of TV Ontario, who is also from Hamilton. And Pakin says Rabbi Baskin gave a wonderful sermon at the party on the importance of maintaining a good name and putting good out into the world. So, muzzle tov. 